Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 2, The Kids Are Alright. Let's get this show on the road. Wow, I'm going to be very honest. I thought it was the kids aren't all right this entire time. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that would kind of make more sense. What did you think of the episode? I loved it. I think this is one of my favorite creature design we've had. Like, legitimately, they are so spooky and so well designed. And I mean, creepy kids are just a good trope and it done very well. Supernatural does creepy kids really, really well. Like, you know, the creepy kids of Supernatural is a big trope and something that it, the show is known for. Can we contemplate while you do the recap? You can go ahead and give me a countdown. Three, two, one, go. We open on Sam sitting in a diner doing what he promised Dean he wouldn't do, which is looking up ways to save him from this deal he's made. While Dean is like, I totally found a case. And by case, I mean a girl I want to have sex with again. So we're going to go to this town for this what probably isn't a case, which ends up being a case. Only to find out this woman is now uh, a mother and it's her son's birthday. Conveniently, an eight-year-old son who looks and acts like Dean. And they hooked up maybe eight years ago. It's amazing because it takes so long for Dean to realize this, but it's hilarious. Unfortunately, not his kid, although I have speculation that it still is. Uh, and it turns out the case they're dealing with is actually a case and it involves changelings, children that are being replaced and drinking their mother's blood, kind of like vampires, but even creepier because they're children and creepier. Um, they eventually do solve this and save the day. And that's really it time. Oh, wait, I lied. There's a whole second plot of Sam meeting the chick who saved him, who's a demon who knows more about his parents. What? Now time. I'm so sorry that you completely forgot about Sam's timeline, but I feel like within everything else that's happening in this episode, we can forgive you for that. Oh, I'll be very honest. That was an intentional uh, moment. It was just the fact that the show treats it so secondary when it's clearly the most plot relevant part of the episode. I think that that's the best observation about this is that it's actually the part of the episode that fits into the rest of the series the most. But you'll see. I mean... Let's move into the long game and then we can discuss this a little bit. Did you notice that the new title slide at the beginning of the episode? I did. I like it. I noticed that right in the middle of it, right before the Supernatural logo comes up and there's kind of like that like astrological looking sign is a Scorpio. Is that relevant? If I'm being completely honest, I'm not sure, but I will be looking this up for our next episode. How about that? Well, as a Scorpio, I am intrigued. Well, there you go. Oh, and it's your birthday tomorrow, too. It is. It will have been a month ago by the time this comes out, but happy <laughs> birthday. Thank you, dear. You're very welcome. We also meet Ben and Lisa, so we do know that this is going to be a part of the long game, meaning they're coming back. I, I'm really okay with that. I honestly like them both. I mean, I think I really like Ben a lot, but I'm excited to have more of uh, at least Ben and, yeah, Lisa. And one thing that really stuck with me this time around is that when Dean is about to leave uh, Ben and Lisa's house, he keeps saying, it's not my life. It's not my life. Your life is not my life. And that, that stuck with me this time around. I feel like it does say a lot about Dean and 
especially kind of the realizations he has with himself this episode. But again, when you add things to long game, it just makes me raise questions, which I love. We also find out, like you mentioned, that the mystery girl who saved them in the last episode is a demon. Yep. And she knows a lot more than we uh, than we knew or the boys knew. She is leading Sam into a path of realization at this point. Despite how much I enjoyed this episode for its monster of the week aspect and kind of fun Dean aspect, this has me super intrigued and like chomping at the bit to get to the rest of the episodes, let alone season. Despite my joke earlier being how it's kind of an ignored bit and kind of like shoehorned in at the end, I'm very intrigued. Oh, for sure. And this we're going to get some answers about this. So let's let's move on with story time for now. If we start at the very top of the episode, in the diner, when Dean is trying to convince Sam to go investigate the case in Cicero, so that he can hook up with Lisa, of course, he says, it's my dying wish. And then Sam goes, how many of those can you have? To which Dean replies, as many as I can squeeze out. In this moment, I really feel like Dean is finally starting to live for himself. He knows that he's about to die soon, and he wants to live you know, before his time is up. And the key words here, he wants to live. Because I think that this is the first time that we really see Dean leaning into what he wants to do and not running after John or Sam or trying to find the demon that killed their mom. Like he is finally starting to think about what he would like to do with his life or the little bit of life that he has left. It's kind of ironic because I feel like up until now, something we've discussed on and off both on the show and on our social media and with our listeners, especially during live events, is what do we think Dean wants with his life? Like kind of what is Dean's happily ever after? I don't think this is it per se, but this is Dean leaning into that and at least discussing it, thinking about it, talking about it. And I think especially in this episode, as we kind of have that final moment you discussed during the long game when he's leaving Lisa and Ben... And he starts to see a life he could potentially have. The idea that his death is impending and he can live life to its fullest before then is making him realize that he actually does want something in life and that maybe death isn't what he is meant for. This is Dean opening the door of opportunity. And even if he doesn't necessarily want, or at this point anyway, he doesn't necessarily want that life with with Lisa, it's him kind of trying it on for size and thinking like this, this could be a possibility and not just saying like, oh, I can't do that because of my work. Like the reason why in this moment he can't do it is he thinks it's because he's about to die and he doesn't want to do that to Ben and Lisa. I would argue a little bit and just say I feel like part of it, even if his death wasn't, you know, lingering over his head that there's still that part of him that we kind of got to see last season, especially in the um, the episode with the Jin, that he can't have a happily ever after because it means people will suffer. And I think in this moment, too, not only is it not for him because, well, his line of work in his life, but, you know, if he stops saving people, then what happened to Ben and Lisa could happen to the next person he could have potentially saved. It's his own twist on the hero's complex. He's compelled to be a hero because if he isn't one, who will be? 
Let's switch gears for a second here because this is upsetting me. Um, I'd like to take a moment to empathize with Lisa because this guy that she literally spent one weekend with eight or nine years ago is showing up on her front step unannounced just as she's having her son's birthday party. And I just cannot imagine how awkward she must be feeling. All of her friends are there and this guy just shows up. I mean, I honestly would have just kicked him off the front porch, if I'm being honest. The entire thing from showing up to the reveal, to the meeting Ben, to his realization of Ben, to his asking, is he mine, is very, like, early 2000s, late 90s TV writing. But you know what? It works. It works in this scene. It makes us empathize and sympathize. And it, it's funny and it doesn't feel completely out of character. And it does actually fit in the episode for once. So I agree. I think that this fits in. I definitely have some thoughts about it, but I think it fits. It works. It, it takes us on a journey with Dean wondering again what could have been. And I think what's interesting here about Lisa is that she doesn't kick him out. She invites him in. And like you said, this is when Dean is starting to have his realization because they last saw each other almost nine years ago and Ben is turning eight. He's wearing a leather jacket. He's eating a sandwich. He has cake with classic cars on it. He likes, at eight years old, he's talking about hot chicks, which I don't even want to go into how inappropriate that is, but but sorry, I was going to say, I love the fact that all of this that we obviously as the audience get to enjoy. And it's only after he makes a comment with the hot chicks and goes into the bounce house that Dean, like, you see it on his face. There's like the whole like stumbling over the trash can that's like, oh, crap. <laughs> he makes some really, really he's starting to do some really, really quick math in his mind. Yeah. <laughs> and he approaches Lisa about it. He doesn't really want to ask directly and Lisa doesn't seem to want to talk about it either at that point in the episode and honestly I really don't blame her because either way at this point Dean is a stranger to her and he's a stranger to her son that he has no right to be involved he wasn't there for it she didn't invite him in she chose to do this on her own kudos to her badass single mothers and this is actually what she tells him after Dean told Ben to beat up the kid who took his video game and he doesn't want to give it back. You don't know me. You have no business with my son. And I really appreciated that. Good job, Lisa. Then we have the whole matter of the changelings, which, you know, I guess we'll talk about a bit more in critical time. But once Dean brings back Ben to Lisa and he tells her about the changelings and he says, you know how I never told you about my job? This is my job. Lisa replies at that moment. I so didn't want to know that. And I don't know about you, but I got some major flashbacks to Cassie in that moment. Because I feel like Dean would have dated Lisa after Cassie, so he would have known not to talk about his job at all, even if he cared about Lisa. And I think that Dean truly thinks that being a hunter is part of what makes him unlovable. Or at least it's another reason why he thinks he's unlovable. But at this point, Lisa knows about his job and she doesn't run away. She doesn't call him crazy. She's still there. I think one little thing I would point out is based on the uh, whispers of the other women at the party. I don't think there was much dating involved minus that one night. But I think that's also emblematic of Dean, though, is he put himself in a relationship. He tried to do that. 
and realized he couldn't. So the only thing he could do were one night stands or a quick weekend or a fling. No matter the length of the involvement, he still wants to, you know, the whole point of coming back to Cicero was to come back and see her. Now, of course, it could just be because he really enjoyed the sex, but I feel like Dean could also just, as we saw in previous episodes, pick up women however he wants. So the fact that he's going back to Lisa, to me, says that there's something about Lisa that's not just about sex. I think that even if they were only together for a weekend, I think he still cared about her. Otherwise, he wouldn't be on her front porch, you know, asking her to hang out with him. Oh, I completely agree. I just think it's it's a very interesting sign to see that he cares about somebody enough to go back to them, even if on paper, what they had is described as a one night stand or fling, as I air quote here. Yeah, but that's that's Dean. That's Dean being putting on his bravado and his machismo. You know, like I don't, I, I really, I really don't think that this has anything to do with the reality of it. Like we can't trust Dean when it comes to him describing relationships. He's an unreliable narrator. True, which is why I'm relying on the other characters who are referencing the events from Lisa's point of view. But I think that's that's what I'm trying to get to is the idea that Dean felt in that time that he couldn't stay. He had to leave like there's no reason that Dean had to go. He never says I had to leave because of work. He just left. What tells you what tells you that it's not Lisa who left? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Ooh, okay. You know, we don't know about this. We're making assumptions here, but there's nothing that says that it's not Lisa that left. Dean's the one that got away. And I think that this is why, to me, this episode is so interesting, because it really asks some important questions about family. Like, does it matter if Dean is Ben's biological father or not? What makes a parent or a father in this case? Is it nature or is it nurture? These are all super important questions for the show going forward, because the show is constantly trying to answer those questions. It's kind of like our question about what makes a monster. It's going to help develop the characters and develop the story. And I think it's also about Sam and Dean, their journey to answer these questions as well, because I feel like those aren't questions for people who are their age and who grew up in their circumstances where the answers would be easier, clear cut. Let's give them some time, some space to, to answer these questions. They still have... 13 seasons to answer them, so hopefully we get some sort of answer soon. On that note, I'd like to mention that while Lisa says that she did do a blood test when Ben was a baby and that Dean is not Ben's biological father, there's a part of the supernatural fandom that believes that he actually was and that Lisa lied. I feel like part of it also goes back to my understanding of a blood test or a DNA test, that you need a DNA sample to match against. And I guess I guess the assumption here is that she got a blood test done between Ben and the other uh, the, the other character she describes, the biker in the bar. Just head cannon wise, it seems weird. Like she described it as kind of like I have a type. It was a like a one time thing, but like, I guess went back to him to get him to approve to a DNA test. It just feels a little like flimsy and not calling her a liar but like i could also kind of see her just doing this to keep dean out of their life because she likes the status quo and doesn't want to complicate things but also understands that she can't stop dean and telling him the truth might force him to stay 
and there's a lot of things on the table I'm now realizing. <laughs> I feel like you're explaining this and, and looking at this very well through a narrative lens. Um, I, I agree with you. It's very possible that she lied for all of those reasons, you know, and for me, it's not a normative discussion about whether or not she should have lied. It's a question of maybe she did and she had her reasons. And at the end of the day, she's, she's his parent. She's Ben's parent. I do have some critical thoughts about this because I really do think that this comes down to they couldn't give Dean a biological son for all of for all of the reasons that we can probably think of. Like, I'll be honest, the fact that in the long game you mentioned they return, I was surprised. I'm happy, but I really wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, let's not get into that right now. But I'm now assuming yeah, I, I Lisa really... and Ben become hunters. I don't like that image. <laughs> There's a lot of headcanons about that, so we can, <laughs> we can explore those very soon. And like you said in your recap, <laughs> yep. oh, by the way, Sam is also having an existential crisis. Yep. I feel like this is also how I structured my notes, and I feel really bad because I usually try my best to center Sam as much as I can. But in this episode, it's kind of hard because the plot of the episode is so heavily driven by Dean it kind of felt like losing the flow of Dean's development to talk a little bit about what Sam was going through. But let's talk about Sam now. Yeah, let's give Sam a fair shake. I mean, honestly, he went through a lot this episode. I, I As much, if not more than Dean in some senses, but he's dealing with a lot of things. Right away, we have the obviously he's lying to Dean and still looking for a way to save him. We even see him speaking to Bobby about this. We then have the visit from the unnamed assailant who saved them the previous episode or two episodes ago. Yeah. In the previous episode, uh, who it turns out is a demon, but a demon who wants to help Sam. I feel like there's a part of me that just assumes this is a bad thing because she's a demon. And that's, there's a part of me that assumes that her wanting to do this for Sam is for her own gain to do something evil because she's a demon. So obviously there's something wrong with her. Well, it's because also we've been told that demons lie, and so we don't know if we can trust this girl or not. I feel like there's the part of me that knows I'm doing this, like, bias against her as a demon because the show has trained me to do it, which means I, there's also the part of me that goes, the show, the show has trained me to do this, which means it's probably going to be a fake out, and she's actually going to be good in the end. Let's keep that in mind. We will get our answer to that at the end of season four. Oh my God, season four, not even this season. Ah. This is when we get our full answer about it. Oh. I'm sorry. And we still don't know her name. We still don't know her name, which is interesting to me because I had written her name into our notes last episode. And then once we started talking, realized that she had never been named. <laughs> I'll, I'll be very transparent with our listeners. I do know her name because it's in the credits and I do check those. So I'm aware, but I'm choosing to play that I don't know it for the sake of the when it's revealed, it can maybe be a thing. I don't know. But at this point, we don't know her name. We shouldn't know her name. I'm not supposed to know her name. All that we know is that she saved their bacon the last time that they were in big trouble that she said that she was going to help Sam save Dean from his deal and that she's a demon. That's all we know about her. And she has the magic knife. She has the magic knife. Yes, that's true. 
Now, the one thing that she does tell him that we haven't really talked about is that she tells him to look into what happened to his mom's friends, and he finds out that they're all dead. Sorry, just baffled for a second here. You think at some point they would have put that together somehow? I'm going to be very honest with you. This gets contradicted later on in the show. I won't ask for more details, but just from a viewer's point of view, it seems like with how much of their focus has been avenging their mother, looking into her life around the time of these events and other people dying mysteriously in their vicinity would have come up at some point in their research, which, again, Sam seems pretty good at his research. Maybe he just had a big blind spot for his hometown, but that feels a little out of character. Shall we move on to critical time? Because I'd like to move into some critical thoughts about this. Let's do that. So who brought us this episode? It is our dear friend, Sarah Gamble, who wrote this episode, and it was directed by Phil Scritchia. Before we move on to the rest of our critical time segments, I would just like to mention that Sarah Gamble wrote this episode, so she wrote about Mary's friends all dying, but then when she becomes showrunner later on, this gets completely contradicted, and Mary has a whole side of her family that's still out there and alive. I've decided this will now be my little time in critical time to throw in my fun little Easter eggs we learn, Uh, and that would be the fake name on the credit card that Dean gives Lisa and Ben is Siegfried Houdini, two famous magicians, as he gives them a card specifically saying they should disappear for a while. Just kudos. Good pun. I like it. Yeah, that was very cute. Would you like to tell us a little bit about Changelings? Oh, would I ever. So Changelings are a long-standing legend in Europe and Fenescandia, uh, that being most of Northern Europe, think uh, Scandinavia by the fjords, that kind of area. Uh, they go as, you know, all throughout Europe, Germany's other legends, England, Spain. They, they, they're pretty far reaching. They are often considered a fairy or a troll or uh, what is often referred to as the fae uh, in legends. And that's because and essentially the whole thing with them is that the fae believe that being raised by a human is better and that a human's mother's milk is better for them and will result in a stronger fae. There's other stories that just believe this is a excuse for human children to be kidnapped and stolen so they can uh, have more children themselves and will often replace the child with a less healthy or elderly fae. This often kind of ties into legends around children dying mysteriously at a young age back when science wasn't uh, as formidable to explain these deaths, unfortunately. So many of the stories around the changelings do focus on how to undo what the Fae folk have done. Some cases, far worse than others, sadly, many methods to save the child involve murdering or hurting them. Uh, This could be torturing them, killing them, burning them, uh, usually fire or ovens, not really a pleasant image. Legends appear to have roots in, as I said, birth abnormalities or birth defects, uh, often cited as the reason why a a child is born different or even death at a young age mysteriously. In some lighter-hearted stories, at least, the child is returned after the Fae is tricked into revealing oneself, usually through surprise. A great example of this is someone running into the home and exclaiming that the local hill, which is rumored to be home to fairies, is on fire, and the child gets up and in a very old man's voice exclaims, Oh no, me children and family, and runs off, uh, only to have the human child returned later that day. 
Though many changeling stories can be found to hold root in the human tradition to explain away what we don't necessarily understand and instead replace science with creatures from another world or magic and spells, it is nonetheless a legend with widespread belief. We still see small traditions, such as gifts of items made from pure iron for new parents uh, to ward off the fairies, and even red clothing, as in some traditions it's believed to red would protect the newborn. And this is your Legend of a Changeling. So we can see the show definitely veered off from it, and the drinking from the mother is a little more literal in this case. But I like what they did with it. I feel like it's because they they decided to talk about older children. And so, you know, drinking mother's milk at eight years old is a bit, you know, iffy. So, slightly. But they used the part of the folklore and the part of the myth that made sense for the episode and it works. I mean, it's it's interesting that in the in the original lore, it's the mother's milk, whereas in this here, it's synovial fluid, which I found was also an interesting thing. Do you know what synovial fu- fluid you is? You know what? I meant to look it up, but I didn't, and I'm kind of glad you're bringing it up because I'd love to know. It's the fluid that is in your joints in order to allow them to kind of like to move properly. And I think here something they did do and it's something we've discussed in the past is I like when they take lore that is open enough to interpretation. Like if you really sit down and read up on changelings, every country, every story differs and is wildly exaggerated in many different ways and reasons. Even the core thing of replacing the child with a child to replacing the child with a full grown adult fae because... They thought either they thought this would cure the old fae and give them new life or they wanted the human child or the human child's irrelevant. It's all about getting their child fed by a a mother like the legends vary enough that they could take it, mold it into their own. And I don't feel like they're treading on anyone's history or culture. No, I agree. I think that this was a good choice for what they were trying to do. It worked out and it works particularly well with the storyline that we haven't talked about. And what would that be? It's Dana's story, Dana and Katie. Dana is the mom that we follow in this episode who knows that there's something wrong with her daughter and ends up trying to kill Katie, her daughter. Weird, because when I looked her up, she's just labeled as Katie's mom in the uh, acting credits on Amazon. I was going to make a deal about this later, how like it's silly she doesn't get a name. We follow her for half the episode, but also that she never interacts with the boys in any way. And she's a totally side story like, OK, sorry, I stole your point. Let's continue on Dana now that we know she's a name. And I think that this is absolutely right. This story is a story of isolation. And so it makes sense that narratively she'd be isolated from the boys as well. As a mom myself, I know that it's really hard to be heard, whether it's because you think there's something wrong with your kid or because you need help. People will somehow always try to sugarcoat it or to put a positive spin on it because they just don't want to have a difficult conversation. And you really see this happening in the episode. Because at first, Dana tries to talk to Lisa about this really big thing that Maybe Katie isn't Katie and that there's something wrong with her. Lisa's immediate reaction is, you can't talk like that. And immediately, that shuts down the conversation. And Dana now knows that this is not a safe space for her to share this really big fear of hers. And it creates shame 
and it creates social isolation because you don't see her interacting with other people after this moment. And this isn't just what's shown in the episode, by the way. This is backed up by research, and I'm thinking particularly about Brene Brown's research on shame. So we see this happening in real time in the episode when the realtor comes to see Dana and asks if she's okay. And Dana knows that she can't talk about her suspicion because she's going to be judged if she does. Not only is she going to be judged, but she's also going to be shamed and she won't be heard. So this is not helpful to her in any way. So she sends the realtor on her way. And then it leads to some really extreme decision making when she decides to kill, quote unquote, her daughter or in in this case, what we find out later to be the changeling that replaced Katie. So, of course, this is fiction, this is supernatural, and this is Sarah Gamble. So the metaphor is clumsy at best. But I think that there's a real observation here about the experience of motherhood and not feeling heard by others. Listening to people is so difficult. It is. It really is challenging. Would you actually like to start with your personal reflection and call to action this week? Yeah, I think for me, and it really, I'm glad it's following what you just said, because I think it makes it so much easier for me to express what I feel. And it is in that moment you quoted from Lisa, you can't talk like that. And how I, it's so hard to, listen to somebody it's so hard to create a safe space i feel like it's a trope in like you know writing men or just being a man or kind of like in the way men are described is you always want to find a way to fix things you always want to offer a solution or an answer and sometimes the best thing to do is just shut up and listen and it's moments like this when you can see how harsh words can be to somebody who needs the help that it reminds me how important it is to just shut up and listen sometimes. That's a really, really good lesson and a really good call to action. And I'm about to say the same thing in a very different way. (laughs) Not so different. I just, I wanted to bring up something that happened to me when I had my newborn, because I I, I honestly really felt called by Dana's storyline this time around. I remember I remember when my son was a newborn and I was talking with a friend who also had kids and he had older kids too. So it felt like, oh, this is somebody that I can actually talk to about this because very few of my friends actually had children at the time. And so I didn't have that many people to be able to relate with. And I didn't make any mom friends until later on. I told him that I found that it was really hard to be up so often at night and that the lack of sleep was getting to me and that it was hard to do this by myself. And his immediate response was, but it's all worth it, right? And it was like, he was afraid that I was having regrets about being a mom or something when I was just talking about one aspect of my experience. I was talking about a more negative aspect, but it was one aspect. And it really made me feel ashamed to even voice this. And I know that this wasn't his intention, but that's how I felt during the conversation. And I also know that this is an experience that many moms that I know have had. So my call to action here is to make space and to hold space for folks, moms in this case, uh, but any parent really, who needs to talk about the challenges of motherhood or parenthood and to just let them speak when they need to, without trying to find something positive to say. Just 
Let the cathartic narrative come out, basically. Well said. I feel like, again, I go back to our retail roots, the two of us. We all sort of get those, like, cliche videos that get shown to employees about how to, like, deal with different situations and how to be empathetic or sympathetic. And it's just sometimes knowing when to let someone speak. I mean, I know it goes back to what I was saying before to shut up and listen, but like it really can go a long way. It really can. It truly can. And again, this, there's also research that shows that. (laughs) Shall we hear what the community has to share with us this week? Yes, we shall. This week we have a voicemail from Kayla. Let's give it a listen. Hi, Drew and Mary. I just wanted to say thank you first off for this amazing podcast. When I first found it, I watched 11 episodes in one day and got caught up in a week. It's fantastic for someone like me who's watched it for a very long time to be able to relive that first time feeling. And I wanted to make a quick connection between Born Under a Bad Sign and Dead Man's Blood. You mentioned they were written by the same woman, and I noticed they both have that, like, Slightly creepy sexual undertone. I was curious if you think this is a coincidence or just happens in the show. I was also curious, Drew, have you watched any of the bloopers? Because I really think you would enjoy them. My last question is, I was curious how you think the boys' lives would be different if they had a sister between them. Like a middle child that was a sister. You've mentioned a few times a female counterpart, and I'm just curious as to your thoughts on how that would be if they had a sister in the mix and how John would treat her and how their lives would have changed, if at all. I've also attached a couple of playlists that I made for your guys' enjoyment that are just songs that really inspire me and make me think of the characters. I hope you enjoy them. Thank you so much again for this podcast and for doing such a great job representing. Even though I might not always agree with you, you always give me something to think about with each new episode. Have a great day. Thank you so much. First things first, I want to just pick up one really small part of this that I want to share. And that was the comment that you don't always agree with us. Thank you. I think that is so important for a conversation to have other opinions and other views It creates conversation. It allows us to explore new angles. So for you, Kayla, and anyone else listening, share those opposing views with us. Share those differing opinions with us. We're never going to see it as fighting or arguing. We are going to see it as a chance to have a proper conversation. So right away, just a big thank you on that one. Secondly, I'm going to agree with you. I have binge listened to many podcasts as I discover them. I have done that several times. So 11 episodes, I feel you. Okay, to address the questions, I feel like we'll have to go double check those two episodes to really compare. But if they were from the same writer, it wouldn't shock me. I feel like people tend to write what they know. I'm not assuming anything here or implying anything about the writer of those episodes. But if it's something they're comfortable writing or they know how to write or an angle they're good at writing, it makes sense that it might show up in their work more than once. I think if you look at any writer from any show, you'll start finding the little things that they do best and either reuse or uh, lean on when they need to. Bloopers, I have seen a few of them on social media. I've even shared a few to Mary over TikTok when I find some really funny ones. And I think at some point we just need to sit down and like watch like a whole season's worth of them or more because they're always gold and I die watching them. I'll admit I've seen quite a few with Castiel as well, which I think are even better because I love Misha, but that's just me. (laughs) 
I think I said that as Mary was taking a sip for a drink and she's now spitting it out. I'm sorry. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> Too spicy. It was so spicy. <laughs> as for your last question, the idea of a sister... I feel like that might need its own whole mini-sode, but to be short and sweet, I think it would change a lot of how Sam sees John because of the way he'd be treated. I think it would affect Dean in his parentification even worse than it already is. And I think it would make the boys' life even harder because they would see how good John could be to a daughter and know they could never have that. Ooh, that's interesting that you think that he would be good to her okay all right all right let's uh Kayla thank you so much and also I I'm going to go and and start with the same place that Drew started it's normal that you're not going to agree with us all the time and that's true for all of our listeners I hope because we're all of course we're all watching the same show but we're watching it from very different vantage points and so sometimes what you're going to see is going to be different from what I'm seeing. And not only is that okay, but that's what makes the show interesting. It means that we can really ask some true questions of the show and of each other about what is the show about, what is happening and what we think. And what I mean by true question is a question to which we don't know the answer. So that's great. I'm very happy that you shared that with us. Thank you. Second... I'm going to go to the sister right away because I have thoughts about that. I, while I agree that it would mean that Dean would also be parentified with her, I think that there's something about a daughter. And we know that John raised Sam and Dean according to very typical gender stereotypes. And so I cannot possibly imagine that he wouldn't be raising a daughter in a very stereotypical way, meaning... Who do you think would actually be the one doing the cooking when they're all teenagers? Who do you think would be the one cleaning up after everybody? And considering that this would be a middle child, I can only imagine that it would be very, very challenging because this middle sister probably would be even more rebellious than Sam. And I just think that it would be very, very messy. It would be very messy. And I don't think that she would feel well-treated by John in any way, shape, or form. So that's, that's just my take on it. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what our listeners very think Very different that. takes. I'm, I'm very intrigued to get some, uh, some input yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Look at us having different opinions and not agreeing on something. <laughs> and being okay with it and not fighting about it. <laughs> <laughs> Then the other thing that I wanted to talk about, the episode that you're talking about, Dead Men's Blood and Born Under a Bad Sign, have been written by Catherine Humphreys. I'm just going to list off the episodes for people who know them, because I do think that there is a thread there to be looked at once, once we get there. So Catherine Humphreys wrote in season one, two, three, and four, she wrote Dead Man's Blood, The Usual Suspects, Born Under a Bad Sign, Bedtime Stories, Dream a Little Dream of Me, Metamorphosis, and Sex and Violence. And I genuinely think that that last episode will be very educational for us in terms of... <laughs> kind, of kind of on the nose for the subject, but okay. <laughs> kind of on the nose for the subject. 
So we'll, we'll do that and we'll do a little analysis, you know, a retrospective analysis <laughs> of her episodes because I really, this is a really good catch. Thank you so much actually for that. And thank you for your playlists. We'll be uh, listing them in the show notes. So for anybody who wants to go and listen to the playlists, please do so. I can't wait to check them out. Shall we move on to the crossroads? Let's go. Seeing as you've started for almost everything else today, would you like to start with the crossroads as well? I would have liked Sam to have been involved in this episode. I would have liked Sam to be a lot more involved in this episode, too. Yeah, but I just I feel like it might be the kind of like double edged sword of like, yeah, Sam's more involved. But would that take away from what Dean is gaining in this episode? Would it hinder his ability to grow as he did in this episode as much as it was mostly tied towards the ending? But then again, would it change Sam's story at all? That's see that I think that that's the more interesting part, because Sam needed to be isolated from Dean in order to be able to talk with, quote unquote, mystery girl. And again, that will also be revealed why later. But can you possibly imagine the looks that Sam would be giving Dean if he saw Ben and realized also that Dean could potentially be his biological father? Does Sam ever see Ben? Like, I know he's there during the rescue at the end, but like, I don't think it's ever made clear to Sam who Ben is in any way, shape or form. Is Dean doing this on purpose? Because <laughs> he's worried that Sam will have ideas. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you because it's never again. This is one of those things that's just dropped and never explained. But if Dean really is Ben's biological father, then Sam is an uncle. Oh, Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam. <laughs> You know that that's how they would call him, right? Oh, His they kids? would. <laughs> and he'd be the boring so, uncle who was always trying to teach them something. He would be the fun uncle who would always be doing science experiments with them. Oh, you know what? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, mm. I think I think that that's what Sam would be doing. And it would be like chemistry, like let's blow something up together <laughs> kind of thing, you know? It'd be like, I could see the like, oh, uh, Uncle Sam's taking us to a museum again. A museum of <laughs> explosions and candy or something crazy. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and what would your deal be at the roads? I think for this week, I'm going to stick with taking up, you know, the mantle of Dana. And I would say that I wish that we had seen some resolution in her story as well. Maybe her reaching out to Lisa or reaching out to some friends to show that she is going to be all right and she is going to recover from this, um, that she is no longer socially isolated or that at least she's taking steps towards uh, a better social connection. So I, I think that that's what I would have liked to see. Yeah, that would have been nice. I think I would have liked... You know what you're right. I think Dana's story's conclusion being like a reconnection with other people would have really been mm -hmm. the ultimate full circle. I agree. Hmm. I think we all just need to connect with people and deal with our stuff together and the way we can. And when she comes to you with a problem, just listen, be there for her. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Kayla for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com, 
Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at CarryingWayward, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. Our November live event will be decided by our patrons. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com forward slash carryingwayward. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Three, two, one, goose. (laughs) That's not fair. I'm restarting that. (laughs) All right. Three, two, one, duck.